Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, after a brush with bleach-tainted throat spray and near-fatal sabotage of his car, radio personality Lee Garrett can hardly deny the threat against his life. He can only hope the police will learn something before paranoia makes him suspect everyone. Now, Chapter 12. Favorite hits of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 620 CTBX. That was the Walker Brothers, and the good news is we'll get lots of sunshine today. The bad news is that it's cold, minus 25 at 721. He tapped the computer's touch screen to start some polka music. Hey, if you're over 60 and you're uh, looking for a way to really warm up with your favorite dance partner, the bit was about a study claiming seniors who drank coffee were more sexually active. A lightweight story, but a good fit with his audience, until he blew the punchline. He stumbled over a word, and that was all it took. He triggered the commercial break, turned his mic off, and slammed the cushioned front of the control board. Shit, his concentration had been off all week. He'd start to say something, then change it around mid-sentence, leaving a mangled mess. He flubbed common words. His creative side was struggling, too. He had to resort to using humor from a web service Arnott subscribed to that wasn't Lee's style, because his evenings of prep work were coming up dry. Was he burnt out? It happens sometimes, especially with morning men. One day it just wasn't fun anymore, and that was the end of a career. Or might as well be. Maybe his brain was telling him he needed a change. To another radio station. A new music format? It struck him that he'd spent ten of his prime years playing songs that were relevant when he was a teenager, many even older than that. They were relics. What did that make him? The thought left him shaken. He'd be lost without his job. An unwanted nobody with no practical skills. Worse, a has-been. Dale Lawson came into the news booth. Lee straightened and made a show of checking the log screen. He got along with Dale now. He even admitted that she was a better reader than Dave Berg, though their banter still fell flat sometimes. Was that her fault or his? After his production shift, he was called to Maddie Ellis's office. His boss looked embarrassed. She asked him casually about the police investigation, but kept glancing at a piece of paper on her desk. What's that, a complaint letter? Her startled look made him realize he'd hit the mark. Yes, as a matter of fact, this guy's complaining that you're not funny anymore, accuses me of muzzling you because of political correctness. How am I supposed to respond to that? You're kidding. I thought he was. She handed the letter over. Lee skimmed the page. The man wrote well, seemed to be intelligent, a long-time listener, too. Maddie said, read the last line. Shit, he's got a ballot. She nodded. Says he's going to mark himself down as listening to CWLF every quarter hour of the week as a protest. How much effect do you think that will have on the ratings? Lee dropped into the chair. Yeah, that'll make a difference. Wonder who gave him that idea. That's not really the point. What is the point? That I'm not funny anymore because one guy said so? You want to force me to say it? Okay, he's right. You're not up to scratch on the air. Your timing's off, you're sloppy, and I don't even hear that much of the show. She leaned forward. You're an entertainer, Lee, but you're only human. Of course the stress is getting to you. How could it not be? 
I have one bad week after ten years and suddenly I stink like yesterday's fish? Come off it. I'm trying to cut you some slack. Cut me some, too. You know how it works. If one faithful listener got worked up enough to write a letter, how many hundreds of others are just deciding to try another station instead? It could just be one guy with an axe to grind. Thanks for your support, he snapped and launched himself out of the chair. He started toward the reception area, then changed his mind and took a couple of steps in the other direction, stopped again. Where was he going? What was it he had to do now? He'd turned around a third time when he saw Ellis watching him through the glass beside her door. He couldn't read her expression. He didn't need to. In the announcer's lounge, he slammed his locker door in frustration, not sure whether his anger was directed at Ellis or himself. Why had he blown up at her? He'd been thinking the same thing about his show only twenty minutes earlier. It just hurt a lot more to realize that others were thinking it too. The sound of Karen paging him to the lobby made his shoulders slump in defeat. He sure as hell didn't feel like talking to anyone. The man at the lobby window was an inch or two shorter than Lee, but with shoulders that strained the leather of his winter jacket. "'Hi, I'm Lee Garrett. Were you looking for me?' His hand was engulfed in a rock-hard grip. "'Yeah, I know who you are. We've met, but I don't think you'd remember.' Lee began to make excuses, but the other waved them off. "'Name's Tucker. Maybe somebody told you.' "'Tucker the Trucker?' The response was a huge, crooked grin. "'You're the guy who who saved my life. Damn, I was a goner and you found me. Saved me. I don't know how to thank you for that.' "'It was a life worth saving. Hell, who else would I listen to if you weren't around?' They shook hands again. It seemed inadequate. "'How about I give you a tour of the radio station and then buy you lunch? It's the least I can do.' "'Sure, yeah, that'd be great.' I've been listening to you guys forever. Tucker was like a big kid as they went through the building, a smile fixed to his square face, craggy from an acne-scarred adolescence. After the tour, they went to a nearby steakhouse, and Lee told him to order anything on the menu and as much as he wanted to drink. Tucker, is there a first name to go with that? Tucker's good enough, he laughed. Even my mother calls me that nowadays. When his meal came, he proclaimed it good. Ten times better than Navy food. You were in the Canadian Navy? Where did you serve? All over. The hairiest was probably the Arabian Sea, on the Fredericton, one of our frigates, stopping pirates, supporting the troops at Kandahar, mostly preventing drug runners and smugglers trying to get weapons to the Taliban. Sounds exciting. Maybe if I wasn't a mechanic, Tucker laughed. Always been good with cars, so when I enlisted I figured an engine's an engine, you know? Never spent a day in clean clothes the whole time I was in. He gave a slow shake of his head, with a trace of pain in his smile. Never got a promotion, either. Couldn't quite keep my nose clean and my mouth shut. Finally saw the writing on the wall and got out. Never fired a shot. Wasn't any kind of hero or anything. Hey, I know somebody who thinks you're a hero, Lee said. You're looking at him. Tucker gave Lee a sole handshake, his sleeve sliding down to reveal part of a large tattoo. Get that in the Navy? Lee asked. Tucker hesitated. Ah, oh, hell, no point keeping it a secret. I was in the joint. Prison. Three years. He gave a sidelong look, wanting to see Lee's reaction without appearing to care. Let me guess, couldn't get a job when you got out of the service? Not a goddamned one. Anyway, I started drinking, gambling pay my bills with other people's credit cards. Holding up convenience stores, making like I had a gun. 
Then some tough guy clerk refused to hand over the money. Some mob guys I was into for heavy cash nearly took my head off, gave me a shotgun and sent me back into the store. His voice had gone quiet. I got the money. Then I got caught. Good thing, too. Who knows what shit I would have got into. Did my time. Gotta say, though, it sure as hell don't make it any easier to find a job. But you did. You work for Foster's, right? Foster's Interfreight? How do you like driving a big rig? I do, you know. It can be lonely, but all that long, empty road clears the mind. He laughed and emptied his beer glass. Lee ordered another. Tucker drummed his fingers on the table. Just got bad timing is all. How do you mean? The big shoulders shrugged. You didn't hear about the cutbacks? Yeah, Foster's has to lay off some people, and I ain't been with them very long, so I'll probably be on the chopping block. I don't blame them. Good company. Just the times, eh? They made small talk after that, and finally Tucker insisted he should let Lee get back to work. I'd been meaning to track you down, Lee said, but things have been... Well, anyway, I'm really glad you dropped by. Gave me a chance to say thanks. No problem. You keep up the good work, cause I'll be listening. As Lee drove away, the words of a Joe South song ran through his head. You couldn't judge a man like Tucker until you'd walked a mile in his shoes. When he got back to the station, he called Foster's Interfreight. Harry Foster was a good head. They weren't close friends, but sometimes traded favors. Foster promised to keep Tucker on the payroll for the time being, and Lee promised to let Foster win at golf. Both men knew Foster could beat Lee blindfolded. They made vague plans to see each other, and Lee hung up feeling good about something he'd done for the first time in forever. That's the end of Chapter 12, but our podcast episode continues with Chapter 13 as Lee's relationship with Candace Ross and her blind pupil Paul Schwartz faces a tough test. He didn't expect the phone to ring on Saturdays and didn't want it to. It would be someone from work needing something from him. It was never personal. That would mean he had a life. He didn't pick it up until the third ring. Lee, it's Candace. Ross. You're the only Candace I know. Really? I thought you knew everybody in town. Not quite. There are a few mothers who wisely hide their daughters from me. Oops, too late. He could hear the smile. Anyway, I was hoping you remembered our date to take Paul tobogganing today. She waited for a reply. You forgot, didn't you? No. Well, yes, I forgot, but I didn't want to forget. She laughed. Well, I guess that's something. Still want to go? Did he? It had been a lousy week. He felt drained. Excuses began to form in his mind, but he said, Sure, why not? That took some thinking. Sorry, uh, maybe I'm still waking up. I'd love to go. They agreed to meet at Paul's, and she reminded him of the address. He found it easily enough, but as he approached the door, he could hear raised voices behind it. Paul greeted him looking like his hand in the cookie jar had pulled out dog shit. Candace and Lenny Schwartz stood facing each other just inside the living room. It was clear Schwartz would have been happier to see Jehovah's Witnesses. Sorry, Lee, Candace barely turned her head. We're having a little difference of opinion. The difference is you talk a good line, but you ain't the one who's blind, filling him with all this shit. Polly's the one who's got to walk out in front of cars and get on a bus he can't even see. If it's so fucking easy, you do it. 
I'm not saying it's easy. It takes training, but it can be done. Go ahead, then. No, didn't think so. Schwartz crossed his arms. Candace turned a red face to Lee. He could tell it was taking all of her self-control to keep her professional cool. He wondered if she could gracefully back down. She went to her coat draped over the sofa and pulled a thick wool scarf free. She folded it into a thinner strip, then pulled it over her eyes and began to tie it behind her head. Candace, it's all right, Lee. Check it, Mr. Schwartz. Check it. Make sure I can't see anything. Schwartz was struck dumb. His hands twitched, uncertain. Then he stepped toward her and yanked on the scarf ends hard enough to make Lee wince. Candace didn't react. The man looked to make sure the folds of the scarf would prevent her even seeing the ground in front of her. When he stepped back, she put her coat on and snatched up the white cane leaning near it. She looked confident as she walked to the door, even making an allowance for Lee as he moved to the side and held the door for her. Don't say it, she tilted her head at him. I haven't had to do this in a while. Maybe it's overdue. She made quick progress. Lee followed closely behind, and then Schwartz walked a couple of steps ahead of Paul, letting the boy hold on to his bent right arm just above the elbow. But the man's quick tugs when Paul strayed sideways betrayed his foul temper. Candace changed her gait to adjust for the slippery sidewalk and felt its texture with her feet as she swung the cane rhythmically in front of her. The cane told her when she reached a space where the snowbank along the side of the street had been shoveled clear for a bus stop. She pulled her wallet from her coat, fumbling with the change pocket. Lee had to fight the urge to help her. When a bus arrived, she asked the driver if it stopped at Southridge Mall. He confirmed that it did, and she stepped smoothly aboard and paid her fare. Unprepared, Lenny Schwartz took twice as long. The passengers stared openly at the blindfold while she gently used the cane to find a seat without legs dangling from it. Lee watched her, too, admiring the determined set of her jaw, disappointed that he couldn't see the fire in her eyes. Certainly this was a test she had trained for long ago, but it was like driving a car. He was glad no one made him take a driving exam anymore. An automated system announced the names of the bus stops with plenty of warning. At the mall, Lee waited for Candace to disembark and face a greater test. Even though they'd been to the same mall together only weeks earlier, she wasn't likely to remember where buses let people off. But she barely hesitated. He realized she was using sounds as much as the cane, footsteps muffled by snow, the swish of the entrance doors. Just inside the mall, she stepped to the side and stopped. "'Is everyone still with me?' "'We're here,' Lee said. "'Paul and Mr. Schwartz are about four feet to my right, your left.' She adjusted her head. "'Paul?' So far it's been pretty straightforward. It gets a bit more complicated now. In my training we weren't allowed to ask for help, but since I'm trying to show you how you can get around, I'll ask people when I think you'd need to. She raised her chin. Will that satisfy you, Mr. Schwartz, or should I also pretend to be deaf and dumb? I don't give a shit. No, that's pretty clear. She began to walk away. Schwartz opened his mouth to snap back, but Lee put a hand on his arm. Easy, he said. She knows that's not true. But why not see what she can do? What have you got to lose? Schwartz angrily yanked his arm free and pulled Paul forward. Paul, Lee continued, you might not have got very much out of this so far, but Candace is just walking through the mall, sweeping her cane from side to side, and people are getting out of her way. No problem. I expect she's using the sounds of the building, the cash registers, and the echoes of voices and things. You can probably tell the difference from place to place, too, right? The boy just nodded, still aware of his uncle's anger. From then on, Lee provided occasional commentary. 
Candace approached the lottery kiosk where a man was ripping open Nevada tickets. She asked the clerk for directions to the bookstore. The woman pointed first, even as she was staring at the blindfold, then, a little flustered, described the route in words. Lee and the Schwartzes waited outside the bookstore while Candace asked for help from a clerk and made a purchase that she tucked into a wide pocket inside her coat. They followed her as she made her way back to the bus stop, rarely deviating from a straight path. Paul had begun to smile, as if witnessing a magic trick. Schwartz still wore the face of a gargoyle smarting from a fresh pigeon dropping. No doubt he hoped Candace would fail, and he nearly got his wish on the way home. The bus let them off on the corner of the Schwartz's block, but on the opposite side of the street from their house. Candace got off the bus facing the wrong way, and hesitated, trying to make sense of the traffic noises from the nearby intersection. Finally she made a decision, turned and listened again, then began to cross the street. Lee heard the sound of brakes almost before he saw the car. It was making a right turn on a green light and had barely slowed down. Candace was stepping right into its path. The scene froze into a shocking tableau, the noise of the tires, the threatening bulk of moving metal, and the woman startled into immobility, cane falling from her hand. Lee lunged forward, but there was no way he could reach her in time. The car managed to swerve just enough, lifting the hem of her coat with its passage. The driver slowed to make sure she hadn't been hit, then gave an angry blast of his horn. Candace still hadn't moved when Lee grabbed her arm, scooped up the fallen cane, and gently pulled her back to the sidewalk. Paul's face was taut with fear. "'Is she all right?' he asked, his voice cracking. "'Stupid. I was stupid, Paul. I hope you can learn from that mistake.' Her voice didn't betray the trembling Lee could feel through her arm. I didn't wait long enough to make sure the cars saw me and knew that I was going to cross. A lot of intersections have crosswalks with loud bird calls to tell blind people when it's safe to cross, but here you have to pay more attention. The light had changed, so she waited for it to change again, thrust her arm and cane forward, waited another moment, then strode across the street as if nothing had happened. She was waiting in front of the house when they caught up. Only when they were in the living room did she reach back to untie the scarf. Great technique, Schwartz scoffed. The funeral homes would love it. I made a mistake, yes. I was rusty and sloppy. I didn't familiarize myself enough with the neighborhood. But we'll make sure Paul is well-trained and sure of himself before he tries anything like that. What about you, Paul? She stooped toward the boy. Convinced? He thought hard. I don't know. I guess I could do it, if you help me. It's kind of scary. Sure it is, but practice makes perfect. It's the only way to become your own person and not have to depend on other people all your life. She was looking at his uncle. What did you buy? Paul wanted to know. She laughed. Oh, it's just a CD. Somebody narrating a Star Trek story. Patrick Stewart, I think. Cool! Lenny Schwartz wasn't about to concede anything. I gotta go to work for a few hours. Goddamn winter plays hell with the cables. He reached for a leather tool belt, leaning against the closet door. Lee looked a question at Candace, but she only shrugged. The situation was delicate. Did she dare to ask for anything more? It was Paul who spoke up. "'Can I still go tobogganing, Uncle Lenny? They were going to take me tobogganing today.' He couldn't see the look on his uncle's face, but added a quiet, "'Please?' "'I don't give—' "'Whatever. Do what you want.' Schwartz pushed roughly past Candace, drove his feet into his work boots, not bothering to lace them up, and slammed the door as he left. The sound of his truck as it drove away broke the spell, and Candace began to round up Paul's snow clothes. 
Late-model Toyotas weren't designed to carry full-length toboggans. Candace apologized for the cords that ran through the windows and across the ceiling. She'd used an old slab of mattress foam for padding on the roof. I didn't know how else to attach it. I'm amazed you could even find one of these antiques, Lee said. Wow, it's made of wood, Paul ran his hand along an edge. The city's Adenac ski hill had a toboggan area, but it was often crowded. The A.Y. Jackson lookout was popular, too, but a longer drive than Candace wanted. Instead, she chose an undeveloped slope on the outskirts of the city that hadn't been traveled since the last snowfall. There weren't many smooth hills in Sudbury's landscape of soot, blackened rock, but this one was perfect, the fresh snow, powdery and dry. I haven't done this since my kids were little. They're teenagers now, Lee ruefully looked down the long slope from the top. I'm sure it's like riding a bicycle. Absolutely, a bike with no brakes. He needn't have worried. It required an effort just to get down the hill the first time. The toboggan sank into the fresh snow and plowed a bow wave. But each run after that packed and smoothed the snow until the toboggan shot along, the path stretching like an elastic band that pulled them to the top again, eager for more. Their snow-sprayed faces soon wore patches of red on cheeks creased by exuberant smiles. Watch for that rock! You're steering too close to that little tree! Duck! Here comes the bump! Candace deftly painted pictures for the boy who reacted to each warning with a grunt or a squawk. Lee sat at the back of the toboggan because of his longer legs, and when Paul grumped about snow in his face, he was given the middle spot, sandwiched between the grown-ups. Candace gamely bore the brunt of the crystal barrage. At first Paul clung to Candace's coat hem to stay in the tracks they made back up the hill, but before long he was following the path of crushed snow on his own, guided by the swish of nylon from her ski suit. The sun was warm, and Lee began to sweat as he climbed. On a whim, he lifted his feet and ran to the top, then leaned on his knees, looking back at the others through panted clouds of steam. The scene was postcard perfect. For a penetrating instant, this woman and child could have been his family, climbing toward him with frost-ripe smiles, a bittersweet image. When Candace asked about the look on his face, he just shook his head. We don't have to spend all day at this, he said. I thought we could grab a pizza, then take Paul to a sports memorabilia shop I know. If we hurry, we could drop into Hobby Depot and check out the model kits, too. She raised an eyebrow as she smiled. Hurry? On a day like this? What's the rush? We can do those things some other time. Do you always live your life to a schedule? But she didn't expect an answer. Their shoulders brushed as she turned toward the landscape spread out below. Just soak it in. We don't get too many days like this. She drew a deep breath of fresh air. No, he thought, not many days like this at all. She gave him a grin. Slow down, you move too fast. Had he told her how much he loved Simon and Garfunkel? Now that song would always remind him of her. I wish Paul could see this, he said softly. Maybe he can. You're good with words. Describe it to him. His lips automatically formed a refusal, but the look in her eyes made him change his mind. He gently took hold of Paul's shoulders, turned him toward the town, and tried to capture what he saw with inadequate phrases. The act of describing it made him aware of even more details. The craggy hills that lifted their heads throughout the city were starkly beautiful with their black shards of rock poking through a covering of white. The drab subdivision below them was transformed by winter, Houses hung from the sky by lumpy strands of cotton. Plowed streets became the outlines of black matchstick castles. Wisps of sponge cloud wiped imagined blemishes from a vast blue chalkboard. 
He was grateful that Paul hadn't been born blind, so he knew what trees looked like, the color of a winter sky, the sparkle of sun-bathed snow. Even in such a simple scene there were so many things that would be impossible to describe without a set of common references. It made Lee feel humble. He hadn't stopped to look, just look, at anything for a very long time. On their next slide down the hill, the toboggan veered off the track, spilling them into a drift. Lee rolled to his knees and watched Paul lick the snow from under his nose, his tongue thrust out as far as it would go. The boy still wiped his eyes clear before anything else. His comic, sour expression made Lee laugh, and Paul laughed too. Candace raised her head, sputtering, then flopped back into the white fluff with a mock sigh of surrender. She turned her head toward Lee and chuckled self-consciously. Snowflakes melted on the ends of her long, dark lashes. The barest wisp of steam rose from full lips. He had an urge to press her down into the snow beneath his weight, his mouth to hers. His breath stilled, and he drank her in with his eyes. "'Thanks a lot,' Paul stood over them. "'I wanted to play in the snow, not eat it.' Lee got slowly to his feet and pulled Candace up. If she guessed what had been in his mind, she gave no sign, only dusted off her ski pants and reached for Paul's hand. They made a few more runs down the hill, then went to a nearby restaurant for some pizza and hot chocolate. Paul talked about school. They watched him and each other. Lenny Schwartz's cable TV truck was in the driveway when they got back. The man said nothing while they helped Paul remove his snow clothes. Paul thanked them for a great time. Schwartz kept his eyes on a basketball game and sipped at a beer. At the street, Candace stopped. I had a great time, too. Thanks. It was your idea, Lee said. You made it a special day for Paul, even the first part. Oh, yeah. Not too eager to try that again soon. But, well, all my clients are important to me. It's just that Paul's at a point where you could save him or lose him, right? Something like that. Then it came to them that they were standing in full view of the picture window with Lenny Schwartz on the other side. She climbed into her car and they exchanged goodbyes. On the way home, Lee realized they'd said nothing about seeing each other again. He tried to figure out his impulse on the toboggan hill. Was he falling for Candace Ross? He didn't think of her as a potential sexual conquest. He liked her too much for that, respected her. But he didn't want a repeat of what he felt for Michaela, the highs or the hurt. He had a family, such as it was. He was too old to start over again. If nothing else, the timing was terrible. His life was a shambles even without being under a threat of death. He couldn't inflict that burden on someone else. Better not to make any more plans. Just let it drop. If she called, he'd keep things on a professional level. Or even see Paul on his own. That would be best. He tried to ignore a hole that gnawed at his gut. Chapter 14 of Dead Air finds the radio station crews coping with the worst snowstorm of the year, but the threat from nature isn't deadly enough for Lee's unknown enemies, and he's forced to face the true viciousness of their resolve. I hope you'll join me next time, but if you can't wait, my website, scottoverton.ca, will tell you how to pick up a copy of Dead Air. It also offers my blog, some free fiction, and more. Thanks again to Audionautics.com for the music, and thank you for listening. I'm Scott Overton.